According to our most recent State of Independent SaaS survey and report, nearly 30% of Bootstrap founders said they were actively considering taking some outside funding this year. So at MicroConf, we put together a guide about the top five options that bootstrappers would consider. It's called the Bootstrapper's Guide to Outside Funding, and we cover friends and family rounds, angel investors, recurring revenue financing, crowdfunding, and venture capital. If you want to check it out, the guide is completely free. Head over to microconf.com slash funding dash guide. That's microconf.com slash funding dash guide. Welcome back. It's Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I'll be talking through a couple topics inspired by listener questions, and then maybe one or two solo adventure topics that I'm going to bring in. So definitely going to hit on what makes a business bootstrappable versus not. I want to talk about cargo culting in startups. And then I received a question about how large of a business can you build at specific levels of lifetime value or ACV. And depending on how long those take, I might add a fourth topic in as well. Before I dive into that, it would be amazing, even if you're subscribed in another tool, if you would go to Spotify right now, type in Startups for the Rest of Us, give us a subscribe, and if you've gotten value from this podcast and want to give a little bit back, uh, I'd really appreciate it. This episode is actually one of the show-must-go-on type episodes. I had a guest lined up, and they had to postpone for a couple weeks, and I hop on a plane to Scotland tomorrow. Not tomorrow when you're hearing this, but tomorrow when I recorded it. And since we've shipped every Tuesday morning for... 615 episodes, 12 years, I want to get something out there. So I'm going to kick off. The first topic is what makes a business bootstrappable versus not. And this has come up a few times. There was a question maybe six months ago about this, and I listened back to that episode, and I listened to the answer I gave, and I felt like it was fine, but it was not great. So I sat and actually gave it more thought, and I wanted to revisit this topic. And what I realized is that the default is bootstrapping. That I start by saying every business is bootstrappable, except in these conditions, right? These are the, I think I have seven or eight things where I think makes it a lot harder or near impossible. And the reason I start with the default is bootstrappable is traditionally, if you just think about bootstrapping and venture funding, so you don't take like angel investments or a tiny seed indie funding type thing, you just look at bootstrapping versus venture, even just in startups. This is not in brick and mortar, not in, you know, dry cleaner, car wash. You just think about software and tech, including hardware, biotech, just startups that are going to be high growth and become multi-million dollar businesses. I think around, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% of those companies started each year or each decade or whatever you want to put it, are a fit for venture and should raise venture. It's a a small number. Now, maybe it's 1.5 or maybe, you know, I think the number is like 0.7% of companies that try to get venture funded get it. And so, yeah, maybe the number is one or two, but it's a small number. And the rest have traditionally bootstrapped because that was what you did is the only options. Now, with indie funding coming out where you have angel investors who are willing to put in money for a company that may throw off profits in the long term, and you have Tiny Seed willing to invest in smaller outcomes. If you sell for 10 to $50 million, that is usually an abject failure for venture capitalists, but for Tiny Seed or for some angel investors, if you can invest at the right amount, then by the time you get to that 10, 20, 30 million, the return is ample enough that it, that it works for you. And so with the advent of that kind of funding, I loosely think of it as this rule of 1990, where around 1% should raise venture, venture-backable businesses, and around 9% 
should think about indie funding and around 90% should probably still bootstrap. And again, maybe that indie funding number is 20%, but it's not 50, right? There's a lot more businesses that can and should be bootstrapped than there are should take any type of funding. And there's a number of reasons for that. But with that in mind, coming back to the question of what makes a business bootstrappable versus not, I'm going to say the default is that you should bootstrap. Unless, and then I'm going to walk through several points. The first one I thought of is revenue is pushed down the line. Meaning, think of Facebook and how long they had to exist before they could monetize it. Google is similar, where they had to have servers and developers and build out these networks and you know, Facebook had to move from school to school. It's a lot of expense there where they needed money for that because the ad model is way down the line. Usually, if a startup uses the ad revenue model, the revenue is pushed way down the line because they don't run ads from the start. You need to get traction. And as you start getting traction, you can raise money. And as you raise money, you don't need the ad revenue. Frankly, building ad tech is difficult. And also, if you have it too early, you don't gain the traction and the momentum. You know, you need that critical mass. And so if you imagine Google having ads from day one or Facebook having ads from day one, it, it could have changed the outcome. And so if your revenue is pushed way down the line, and this includes even, you know, think of like Dropbox where they were, they're free, right? They are freemium and you can get a lot of value out of Dropbox. I don't remember what the exact number of megs you can get before you have to pay them, but I remember using it for quite a long time. It wasn't until I started doing video and, and more audio that I needed to start paying for Dropbox. And so I think back in the day, Dropbox used to say of all of our customers that sign up in a given year, it's like two to 3% convert to paid within a year. And so think about all that they have to support and all the costs of that hardware and of the storage and of customer support and all that. That money is pushed down the line, but you know they've built a, they built a pretty good business on it. And so if revenue is pushed down the line, if it is postponed and you can't just monetize early, like we're SaaS, we charge 50 bucks a month, first day you're a customer, right? That is kind of the opposite. The second thing that makes a business really hard to bootstrap is if the market is winner take all, meaning something like Uber, where... Really, Uber and Lyft are one and two. And when I say winner take all, you know what that phrase means. It doesn't actually mean all, but it does mean most. And Uber is big and it's a lot bigger than Lyft. And it's because it needed to move very quickly because once everyone has that Uber app downloaded and both the drivers, two-sided marketplace, right, drivers and the folks that need rides, they are unlikely to download another app unless Uber really makes big mistakes, which they did. If you watch the growth of Lyft when Uber, when Travis Kalanick and, you know, was making his mistakes, getting ousted as CEO, and Uber was talked about having such a toxic corporate work culture. If they hadn't done that, it was a huge stumble. I think that they, they would still be many, many, many times Lyft. And I think Lyft played a big catch up because I, I know that a lot of people uh, actually deleted Uber at that time. So with that said, if it's a winner take all market, you have to move really fast. Amazon was in another space like that where it's like, yes, there are other online retailers, but like who else? You know, it's like Walmart, aren't they number two in e-commerce? But like Walmart had, you know, 60 years and thousands and thousands of stores already. So that's how they got in. That's not a bootstrap. They didn't bootstrap that. They put tons of money behind it. E-commerce on the internet, again, winner take all does not mean 100%, but like Amazon has a huge chunk of that. And Jeff Bezos knew that and therefore did not try to bootstrap Amazon. He raised funding right from the early days. Another thing that makes a business hard to bootstrap is, similar to Uber, a two-sided marketplace. If you have reach into one or both of those sides, you already have an audience, 
in of drivers or of folks who want to ride or you already have an audience of people applying for jobs and, and employers who might hire folks, you know, it's a different story. But if you literally have zero audience in a space and you're trying to do a two-sided marketplace, no reach, no customer list, bootstrapping this is very, very difficult. Even if it's not winner-take-all, not all two-sided marketplaces are winner-take-all. You know, Elance, Upwork, Guru.com, there are others. Now, I would say that Upwork has certainly owned most of the market. Uh, the, I don't even know if it's the majority, but there are other two-sided marketplaces in that space and bootstrapping them would be very difficult. I don't know which of those three bootstrapped, if any, but if I were starting a two-sided marketplace, I would either want reach into one or two of the sides or I would want buckets of money to be able to reach because it's kind of like launching two SaaS products at once because you have to have two go-to-market strategies. I mean, it's just, it's such a headache. You've heard me say this before, please stop trying to bootstrap two-sided marketplaces if you don't have an advantage. Another thing that makes it hard to bootstrap, it's possible, but it's hard to bootstrap hardware. It's just really expensive. And I heard uh, actually a friend who ran a SaaS company who then started a hardware company, he said, this is ridiculously hard, ridiculously expensive and takes forever. And so is it possible? Sure it is. Is it easy? No, it's not. So I would, I would raise, uh, certainly be thinking about raising funding if I was going to do any type of hardware, biotech, you know, with big R&D expenses. Another thing that makes bootstrapping hard is similar to that pushing revenue down the line, but it's taking a percentage, a cut of processed revenue. And a good example of this is Stripe, right? Stripe takes 2.9% plus a transaction fee. And that would be very, very, very difficult to bootstrap that business because all the infrastructure you have to build up front in order to support that. And then people just trickling in and you're taking... 3% of $1,000, you know, the first few months, so you're taking $30 off of that. And how do you pay for the servers? And even if you're coding yourself, how do you keep yourself alive and everything in terms of having having money to live? And that is why, like, Stripe went through YC, and then they've obviously raised a kajillion dollars. And is it possible to have, to, let's say, have an e-com startup where it's, you know, like abandoned cart software, right? Or even start, you know, a shopping cart of your own or whatever to compete with Shopify and have a niche and take a cut of revenue? Sure it is. I did notice when Shopify launched back in, it was like 2006 or seven. they were purely a percentage of GMV, of gross merchant value, right? A percentage of the revenue. And they quickly switched that within six months to where they have subscriptions, right? Same thing with Gumroad. Gumroad originally just took a cut, and I think it was like 8% total. So it was like 3%, whatever it was. It doesn't really matter what it was. But now they're, you know, they've really been pushing their subscription plans since then. Another thing that makes a business not bootstrappable or harder to bootstrap is having massive per user costs. And even if it's not massive, not having monetization. So I guess this ties into the earlier one of really pushing revenue down the line, but it is having higher high per user costs. Again, I come back to Dropbox. When they launched, which was over a decade ago, they couldn't use AWS because it was too expensive. And they, I think, rolled their own hardware, you know, in data centers. And it's like that is an upfront cost to buy those and to, and to store everything. And then the last two are needing a network effect, and which I guess really is like a mostly a two-sided marketplace, but you could have three sides and everything. So that relates to the, the two-sided marketplace. And then the last one I was thinking of, which I don't actually think should be included in this list, but I wrote it down with a question mark. And I was saying, you know, Bootstrappable businesses, I was thinking that it's easier to bootstrap a business when the audience is online, the customer base is online. And then I looked at how many tiny seed companies are going after home improvement contractors or CAD engineers, lawyers, 
investment firms that invest in derivatives. You know, there's a whole list. And yes, these people, it's not that these customers are not sending email or using web browsers, but they are not hanging out on Twitter and in private Slack groups and on Facebook groups and on Stack Exchange and Hacker News and Reddit in the way that developers, designers, founders, and, you know, some other groups are. And so everyone, quote unquote, is on, you know, everyone is buying anything is online. But what I mean is, are they really hanging out and easy to reach, right? Home improvement contractors, construction firms, architects, interior designers, there's some haunts where they hang out, but it's not going to be in the, you know, at the level of technical folks. And so originally I was thinking, yeah, you know, I've always targeted folks who are online because I'm, I know I'm online marketing, right? I'm not going to do a lot of cold calling and in-person events and stuff, but I actually think there's great opportunity there. I know there's great opportunity because I see the companies that we've funded and I see the companies in the microconf space that are actually going for audiences that are mostly not online. And is it more expensive to reach them? Yes. And that's why your price point's higher. You know, your, your price point, your ACV affords you the luxury of doing that. There's often less competition. It's more of that customer pain than there it is the competitor pain. And so that was my list. It's probably not exhaustive, but uh, I wanted to put it down here because I felt like, my, again, my last answer was shorter and I didn't think communicated it in the way that I wanted. So hopefully those seven points help give you a frame of reference when you're thinking about your next business. Do you know what one of the biggest competitive advantages is for a startup? It's not being in Silicon Valley, having access to capital. One of the biggest advantages is access to great talent and the ability to hire them fast. This week's sponsor is Lemon.io. Lemon.io gives you access to a pool of engineers from Europe and Latin America. It's a marketplace where they check and interview every candidate and then carefully match them with hand-picked projects. And it's incredible how quickly they can do it. Lemon.io can offer you a match with a perfect developer within 48 hours. Think about it. You can have a developer working on your project within two days. And due to their extensive pool of developers, inexperienced candidates don't qualify. These are all developers with a lot of experience working on startups and projects just like yours. You can find your perfect developer or development team with Lemon.io. Claim a special discount for Startups for the Rest of Us listeners. Visit lemon.io slash startups to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with your dev. That's lemon.io slash startups. All right, my next topic is cargo culting. If you haven't heard that term, cargo culting, I'm going to read a little bit from the Wikipedia page that essentially defines it. So a cargo cult is a belief system of indigenous people in Melanesia. Melanesia, yeah, I hope I'm pronouncing that that, uh, correctly. But basically during the Second World War, allied military forces used to airdrop supplies in large numbers and technology and all that kind of stuff. And then the soldiers who were on the ground in Melanesia would trade with the islanders. So after the war, the soldiers leave and this thing called a cargo cult arose. Cargo is what was being dropped, right? And the indigenous people attempted to imitate the behaviors of the soldiers, thinking this would cause the soldiers and their cargo to return. So this included things like dressing like a soldier, performing parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles. They misattributed what was bringing the cargo, which was completely unrelated to them being soldiers, and it was completely related to someone flying a plane over and dropping all these supplies. So that's the definition of it. And I see this in startups where some startups are not successful because they did things. They are successful in spite of the things that they did, in spite of the decisions they made. 
And I brought this example up before where it's like Apple or Basecamp or someone says, well, they just built great products and they didn't do marketing. Or I, I do believe Jason and, and David Hanemeyer Hansen came out and said like, yeah, we don't do marketing, we don't track metrics, we built a great product, that kind of stuff. And they've, to be honest, eased up on that, I think on that narrative. And, and when I, I interviewed Jason Fried a couple years ago at MicroConf, that's not how it came across actually. He said, we did some things right and we also got a little lucky. And I appreciated that honesty from him. But there are other examples of this of you take 100 companies that do track their analytics and they are doing blocking and tackling marketing, whether that's SEO content, pay-per-click, cold outreach, partnerships, integrations, whatever. You know, all the, all the things that, I, that we talk about on the show. And you take 100 companies that are doing those. From what I see, from my experience, the companies who succeed are doing those things. And if you took 100 companies who just said, well, I'm just going to build a great product, a couple of them would succeed. They will get lucky. You know, I talk about hard work, luck, and skill. And in this case, I'm basically saying blocking and tackling is having the skill to do it and then putting in the hard work. Could you feasibly have really low hard work and skill and just get really lucky? Absolutely. And out of 100, 500, even bootstrap startups, you're going to have a few that do. And that survivor bias of pointing to them and then saying, well, look, they made, they made it work. They built this amazing business and all they did was build a great product. And I say, no, that's not all they did. They also got really lucky. They were either super early to a space they accidentally stumbled into just a huge vacuum of demand, which is unusual these days in software, right? Most demand has been satiated by some type of product. So there is some competition, but let's say a product was beloved by everyone and then you know got hacked and was shut down or it got sold and shut down and suddenly there was a big vacuum there and you went in and realized, oh, I can build this product. You need to have some skill and then put in the hard work to build a, a good or a great product. But if that demand was already existed and you jumped right in, you can't then say, we didn't need to do marketing, so you don't either. Because unless you have, you being the other person listening to them, have the same situation where you've stumbled into this amazing demand or you're super early to a space where it's like, oh my gosh, this tool or this ecosystem is taking off WordPress or Stripe or no code or you know something where you just hit it at just the right time. And again, I, maybe it's skill that you did that or maybe it's luck, but unless the other person also has that in place, you succeeded probably in spite of some of the things you didn't do rather than because you didn't market, right? And so I've talked about like being early and, and kind of getting lucky for other reasons. I've heard some stories where the founder is kind of almost acting coy, like they succeeded without working hard to be like, yeah, we just made it. Like we're either we're that good or I don't know, they don't want to admit the hustle, right? Because I don't know that I can think, again, except for a couple founders I know who have gotten exceptionally lucky. I can't think of many founders I know who have not worked their ass off to build a great company. It is a lot of hard work and getting some things right and some things wrong, but it's moving fast, it's working on the right things, it's being willing to make mistakes, and it's being willing to put in the hard work. And by hard work, I don't mean 80-hour weeks. I mean really focused time of executing on something and not being all over the place, not skipping from one thing to the next, not doing things half-ass, like seeing them through and showing up every day, and whether it's a podcast or a SaaS app, or a book, showing up every day and shipping and getting something out into the world. So I think that's all I have to say on cargo culting. I just wanted to bring it up as something to be aware of. I think it's an anti-pattern, right? It's an anti-pattern to look around and think that you don't need a lot of the tools. And you know what? We want the world to, to be that way, don't we? Like we want to just, I'm a product person. I want to just build a great product. I really don't want to have to market it. I want it to market itself. It just doesn't happen that way very often. It's very, very rare. Sherry talks about this. She comes on the show periodically, and last time she came on the show, she talked about her new book uh, that launched. 
she said she really just wanted her to get a book deal because the book was great, because the book is great. But in fact, without a social media presence, without an email list, without some type of audience and name, she said she couldn't get a book deal, you know? And that sucks. I don't want the world to be that way, but those are the facts. Like That's just the way the world is. And I feel similar about startups. It's like, it's easy to want to think that the world is a certain way, but I think the, you know, the reality is quite different. All right, last topic of the day is a question from Brian. He actually made a comment on the startupsfortherestofus.com website, and he was talking about the episode where I explained SaaS metrics to my 11, was he 11-year-old at the time? Yeah, and Brian says, great episode, extremely bright child. Thanks, Brian. And he says, the example you used in this episode produced a lifetime customer value of $200, which you described as an amount that is, quote, fine for a small business, but really hard to grow a company. Perhaps an idea for an upcoming episode could be to look at different lifetime value metrics in a bit more detail and map these onto different kinds or sizes of businesses. I know this is quite macro and you would have to speak in general terms, but I personally would find this sort of episode really helpful for loose mapping of future business product pathways in my own projects. So I summarize this as how large of a business can you build at a specific level of ACV, annual contract value, or lifetime value? And I think it's a great question. And I think there's a pretty simple answer to it. Of course, podcast drinking game, it depends. Yes, got it in there. But realistically, my rules of thumb or my mental generalizations are, so let's think about it as ACV because lifetime value can be misleading because if you have very, very low churn, like 1% a month, then you'll get your lifetime value from that customer over 8.33 years. And that's not helpful when you're bootstrapping because you're going to run out of cash. So I like to think about either average revenue per account per month, ARPA per month, or we can say ACV, which is just how much you receive on average from each customer in a year, right? So one of those is much more, it's more relevant because as a bootstrapper, you need these short payback periods from your marketing, right? If you're doing pay-per-click ads, four months, six months, seven months, you get further out than that. You just need more cash in the bank. You need quite a bit in order to not go to zero before you, you pay that back. So here are some, some general rules of thumb. Usually, in most cases, in almost all the cases I see, the lower your price point, the higher your churn. And so the lower your price point, the lower your lifetime value, not only because of the numerator, but because of the denominator. If you remember, lifetime value is your average revenue per account per month divided by your churn percent, right? So if it's $50 a month you're charging and you have 5% churn, then it's 50 divided by 0.05, which is a $1,000 lifetime value. So if your churn is high and your average revenue per account is low, it goes down really fast in terms of lifetime value. So that's point one. The hard part about saying how large of a business can you build at a specific you know, revenue per month or annual contract value is really depends on the size of the market. Because look at Netflix or Spotify or any of these subscription services aimed towards consumers where they're charging, what is it, 6 to $15-ish? That's kind of the big range. But they build nine-figure ARR businesses. Is that right? Yeah, that's hundreds of millions. If not, do any of these get into the billions in revenue? I actually don't know, but I wish there was a you know text box on the internet. I, I could type these questions into and it would just give me the answer instantly. But you get my point. You can build a massive business, but you need massive scale, right? And you need a huge total addressable market and total reachable market. And that is not what most of us as bootstrappers are going to be able to do. You can't just think about how large of a business at a specific ACV. It's, it doesn't map. But I will say, in general, in kind of the bootstrapped software space, the bootstrapped SaaS, you do have to think about the total reachable market. And so let's say that you have podcast hosting or podcast editing software or something like that. 
and your price points are a bit lower, you know, because you have prosumers and others using it. And your price points are in the, you know, 10 to ten to $100 for most. And then you do have some, some enterprise folks in a dual funnel. That space is large and it's growing. Versus if you are starting a business that serves construction firms or that serves venture funds, you know, venture firms or accelerators, there aren't that many. And they actually are pretty easier to reach than construction firms, but there are not millions of those available, right? There's what, thousands, tens of thousands? It's, it's not a huge number. And so your ACV or your average revenue per account per month or per year, it has to be pretty high. You know, I'm thinking along lines of five, 10, 25, $50,000 a year in order to justify the work to sell and support if it's construction firms or just the, the small market of accelerators or, or venture funds versus you can build a multi-million dollar or an eight-figure business in podcasting with that probably not average revenue per account of, of 20. I would hope it'd be more than that, but certainly it can be a lot lower. Similar with like email service providers, right? Like Drip's lowest pricing plan was $50 and average revenue per account was in, it depended on the, the time, but let's say it was 70 to 100 for a certain period of time. But that email space is huge, right? The number of companies that need an email service provider and the expansion revenue and the ease of marketing in that space means we could acquire customers for, for not very much, basically. And so the ACV could be a lot lower than someone selling into a space where everything is cold outreach, right? Where it's like, I'm going to do LinkedIn, I'm going to do in-person events, I'm going to do cold calls. So these are the, the axes I'm looking at, right? Is how hard is it to find your customers? Are they online? Are they online all the time? And it's the Hacker News crowd and the Reddit and just developers and that kind of thing. And you just kind of build that audience and, and get it going. Or are they really hard to reach and you're going to have to be doing the calls, right? The cold calling. These are really the drivers of how big of a business you can grow, as well as that total reachable market term. No one says it that way, but TRM. I don't know how else you would say that. The total reachable market of you know how many folks that you can actually reach, that you could potentially convert. And then the average revenue per account in churn. I mean, those are the things I would kind of put into a blender. <laughs> and again, it can range. There have been businesses that have applied to Tiny Seed, and I think one that got in that has like 1,500 potential customers. That's it. And there's a way to expand beyond that, but it's a very small number. So as a result, for us to invest in that company thinking, can this get into the millions of dollars in ARR, that company has to charge a lot more. Again, 25 to 50K per customer per year in order to justify that. So I like this question, Brian. I appreciate you sending it in because I think it's good for us to think about these roles at them and to think about the axes of it's not just ACV, but it's what's the cost to acquire the customers and what's the churn like and then what what are our price points like. And so I hope me talking that through was helpful not only for Brian, but for you as a listener. Thanks again for joining me this week. As a reminder, if you have Spotify, it'd be amazing. Search for Startups for the Rest of Us. Give us a subscribe and a like. I don't think it's a like. It's probably a thumbs up or a five-star rating or something. Really help us get just a little more traction, a few more listeners, and I'd really appreciate it. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 615.